0: The National Archives podcast series, Star Chamber Stories, using records of the early modern equity courts. First of all, if we go back in time a little bit, we're just going to talk about where these courts came from and where, it's, where their jurisdictions arose, and they really come out of the, of the Royal Council, um, and the idea that justice was done in the King's name. Uh, the king is the focal point of the law um, appointed all the judicial officers and made the system work throughout England and Wales so really the law is about the king and defending his rights to some extent and Magna Carta really defined this in the 13th century Um, but it's to uphold the law for all subjects the king's legal existence is part of this judicial system that was meant he was not above the law, he was part of the system of the law so the ideas of um, crown power was meant to be discussed and negotiated through Parliament and the Royal Council and this sort of developed into an idea that the King had to be authoritative and just so there was punishing power as well as mercy and persuasion and arbitration I suppose. And the Royal Council which worked with the King very closely to, to manage the way Medieval government worked came to represent how this this right of the king to direct the law and dispense justice um, was actually administered. So really, we're talking about the council as the sort of engine house of of government. So the idea of the king's possession of the law encouraged the council's jurisdiction in this idea of mercy um, arbitration in the law and the place for remedy of things which couldn't be sorted out the common law, at uh, the law which was defined by statutes through Parliament. Because of this, um, this implication that the Council could run a system of law based on petitions and um, decisions based on evidence and argument, there was a great rise in equitable business at the end of the 15th century, especially in the Chancery Court and um, councils of the Marches of Wales and in the North, and of a Court of Poor Men's Requests, which was set up. Under the Yorkist kings. And the chief of these courts to develop, um, probably not until the 16th century, in its final form, was the Star Chamber. Now, the Star Chamber had always been a room rather than a court. It was the room in Westminster Palace where the king and his councillors discussed le- legal matters. But patrons' petitions, sorry, delivered outside of Parliament had always come to the crown um, and been sifted by councillors. And the less important of these went to the the Chancery Court, the Lord Chancellor's Court of Chancery. But other material, especially serious criminal offences, disorder, rebellion, perversion of justice and malpractice, remained to be decided by the king and his inner councillors. Legal petitions were gradually addressed directly to these councillors in the Star Chamber, but a court only began to be formed around about 1500 and we've got some of the very earliest records of the court at the back of the room which we can look at later the courts become defined by this act in 1487 um, it set up a, a judicial committee and later on someone's written on the on the roll act pro camera stellata, act for the star chamber attached the function of the court to this act but this is actually a bit of a red herring as I'll explain it didn't actually set up a new court But it was a council committee under the chancellor, justices, and a few nobles to tackle offences related to local disorder and abuses of the law. And this committee took over some of the full council's legal jurisdiction. Many people didn't really know what this committee was set up to do. And so they um, questioned whether it took over the full powers of the council, only those things described in the act against riot and disorder. So they sort of hedged their bets and complained of violence and abuse of law in addition to the, the real complaint, which is usually about land title to property. So, Star Chamber bills emphasized this violent aspect of, of disputes over land, and because the bills were based on the Common Law Bill of Trespass, the emphasis is on violence, even if non, none had taken place. And before 1551, um, Queen Mary's reign, Cases concerning title to land form the majority of Star Chamber cases in the records that we've got here, um, stack one to four of the series. But in 1551, the council decided that it would no longer hear cases properly belonging to the common law. So, this took a lot of land disputes back out of Star Chamber and back into King's Bench and Common Pleas. And what was left was basically um, by Elizabeth I's reign was effectively a a criminal court run by councillors defending the king's law very closely in line with royal priorities at the time. So switching to the other equity court, I'll talk a bit more about requests and then a bit about procedures in both courts. The Court of Requests, as I mentioned earlier, this was a gradual development in the 15th century to sort out these levels of petitions that the crown was receiving. So. This was mainly the itinerant council that followed the king around the country as he moved between his royal houses, or he went to meetings with nobles and other rulers. He would have a a corps of councillors that accompanied him, and people would present petitions as they travelled along, as they stayed in county towns, and these had to be processed and dealt with by the king's councillors. In 1483, Richard III actually set up a clerk of poor men's requests to deal with this, Um, and it operated like the chancery court, Specifically for suitors of a lower social status, as fees were lower, the process was supposed to be quicker. And because of this, um, surprisingly, the records haven't really been studied in any depth. I know we have a, a problem with cataloguing a lot of them. Um, very many of them haven't got any sort of description at all. But there's literally thousands and thousands of cases which are very great resource for early modern local social and family history yet to be looked at. So, how did this court develop? Well, the judges, because of its um, jurisdiction, were originally the King's almoner and the Dean of the Royal Chapel, the sort of spiritual counsellors of the Crown, because they'd be better able to assess these poor men's causes that would be being presented. It wasn't until about 1519 that Thomas Woolsey established a regular meeting of this in the White Hall at the Westminster Palace, um, right next to the Star Chamber. It was then headed by the Keeper of the King's Privy Seal. Especially appointed masters of requests who decided poor men's causes by equitable means, and I'll get onto that in a minute, what it actually meant. The cheap and simple procedure attracted all sorts of business from other courts and and also their resentment, but it also attracted the business of people who wanted to pay less for their justice, so it wasn't really poor men's cases, even after 20 or so years of its existence. And it was never formally abolished, um, but it lost its seals, and its jurisdiction passed to other locals' claims courts after Charles II came back in 1660 and you do find there's still a London Court of Requests in the 18th and 19th century so these local jurisdictions still existed and the records are very similar to these earlier ones. What sort of business did it engage in? Well, it followed chancery procedure. The bills presented by the plaintiffs, the people bringing the cases, would be in English, and they'd be followed by an answer from the defendant, and then replications, rejoinders, and so forth, as each part of the um, the case presented its evidence to try and persuade the councillors of their right to the verdict. L- a lot of the material was actually dealt with locally, uh, which is similar to requests, uh, similar to chancery, sorry, um, in that commissioners would be appointed to go out into the localities where the disputes had arisen, and actually interview people, take depositions, and then return this information back into the court. The decrees and orders were based on what these commissioners reported and other documents that were drawn up by the council, councillors as they were judges. Its range of business was really about property, pensions, annuities, dower land, um, jointure marriage contracts debts arising from business, and especially commercial bonds, forgery and perjury, so nothing too criminal there. But it overlapped with Star Chamber in its procedures and in the nature of the records, because of the way they've been archived over the years, there's quite a lot of overlap, especially in the uncatalogued material that we're still trying to sort out. So more generally, this is what happened in both courts in the process of bringing a case to, to trial. The English bill was addressed to the King, the council or the chancellor and just set out the nature of the complaint and requested that the defendant be summoned into court to answer that complaint. If the grievance was accepted as valid by the court a writ would be um, instructed to be drawn up under the privy seal to be sent out of chancery and this would be written on the back of the bill. And the writ commanded the appearance of the defendant on a specific date with a financial penalty as subpoena for non-compliance. The allegations of a wrong to crown interest could also be um, initiated by the Attorney General acting on someone else's information, and you'll see a lot of these cases at the start of the list where the Attorney General is named as the plaintiff, but it's on the information of somebody else. So this is um, an image of what some of the bills looked like in their volumes for Henry VIII's reign, and this volume is at the back of the room, you can see it at the end. The defendant's appearance was noted by a clerk in the register and in Star Chamber. We don't have any of these registers, uh, but we do have some of them in requests. He was sworn in and made to answer to the allegations. A defendant might try and offer a demurrer which might question the court's right to hear the particular case and it could be on a technicality or he could say usually this was better determined at the common law to try and get the whole thing thrown out of the council court moved into um, a common law procedure which would then get bogged down in all sorts of prevarication and hopefully forgotten about. The defendant usually answered with a denial of the bill's allegations and then gave his or her version of the facts. Of course they'd be di- directly opposite to what the um, plaintiff was alleging. Defendants could also be examined under oath on questions of fact, something which wasn't allowed in the Chancery um, because it has a slightly older um, jurisdiction and development but because councillors could um, embody the king's intervention in the law here they were allowed to to interview um, defendants in a slightly different way damaged um, because they were stored pretty poorly um, and there's about I think five or six hundred boxes like this of material which hasn't been listed in any sort of way so carrying on before 1520 the defendant was made to declare um, and that was written on the back of his answer. So he would actually, that would be proof that he'd made a declaration in the court. But when Wolsey took over the court, he expanded and streamlined procedure. The defendant had to swear to the truth of the answer. He was examined under oath by interrogatories, specific questions on the facts and disputes set by the plaintiff. And a lot of the records we have are just long lists of up to 50 or 60 questions numbered, which are then um, addressed to different witnesses or to defendants with the numbers on their depositions showing which ones they'd answered. Defendants had to appear in person, not by attorney. And if you were trying to make an excuse for non-appearance, you had to have an affidavit um, certified by commissioners um, that would allow them to be examined locally. So the next stage will be replications and rejoinders which accepted the basic point of the facts but worked in new evidence as this became more and more specific as each side bounced back its versions um, of events based on the, their opponents previous statements and in Elizabethan times these cases at this stage were sometimes linked to related suits in other, other courts so quite often you'll get counter suits by the defendant bringing the case as a plaintiff in. Um, common law courts or in another equity court so rules of procedure had to be tightened up and documents had to be produced on time and writs had to be filed Um, and witnesses were originally examined by judges and the depositions actually be sworn in the open court but by the 1530s witnesses could be examined outside the sessions by clerks and more usually locally by commissioners and it's this witness evidence which is actually some of the most useful material because although it's related to the case, it builds in all sorts of local information about land use, landholding, local life, a lot of social histories in these depositions. Um, and although it's highly biased, you actually can use them very well. And for things like the um, Northern Assize Circuit, we've got these depositions very well catalogued and a lot of people are using them for specific research now. So if we did this for the equity courts, I'm sure we'd get better usage out of this material. And here's a a picture of some early depositions. Uh, Again, all of these are at the back of the room. You can have a look at them later. Mm -hmm. So the statements of everyone involved in the case would be available to their lawyers, and the date would be set for the hearing and the judgment. And unless the defendant had confessed, both parties had to appear on the appointed day or, despite any of the actual procedures previously, they would be dismissed, lose the case, and have to pay the costs to their opponent. So, the hearing at the end would be presided over by all the judges involved, and the bill and answer would be reread and other documents summarised, and then the attorneys would sum up their arguments, and the judgment would be entered into Korean and Order books. Very useful if you want to find out what actually happened, because quite a lot of what we've got here is just the procedures and the the stages of legal cases and we don't really have too much which tells you what happens at the end. So in Star Chamber the Chancellor and the Lord Privy Seal and requests would refer points to other councillors or experts for advice and the judges would review material which came in from outside from out counties before decrees were issued, very similar to Chancery. But criminal cases in Star Chamber would proceed like common law procedure But even so, many judgments were not emphatic or lasting and loopholes often allowed cases to be restarted um, elsewhere in a slightly different form. So the main sort of, well not punishments, but ways of enforcing verdicts were injunctions and recognizances, and sheriffs could also be instructed to seize property and again a different set of records for that kind of instruction. The main punishment was fining, and Star Chamber had fines from 20 shillings up to about a thousand pounds during this period in the 16th century, but it could also order imprisonment, humiliation in the pillory, mutilation, flogging, or branding. In request, it was much more usually fines, but they also reflected the ability to pay. So some restoration of property in dispute, title or goods, with costs, or damages was usually sufficient to decide a case and the victor would usually receive costs and damages in addition to the property rights at issue. But the loss of the Star Chamber archive, especially on the court side, hides the final outcome of most cases in the court. We have some extracts of fines um, in chancery memoranda rolls, which some, sometimes show judgments but um, it's not a great Record to try and find out verdicts and sentences. So, what has survived? Well, in Star Chamber, each reign has a dedicated series under the STAC um, department prefix. So, Henry VIII is stack one, Henry VIII, uh, sorry, Henry VII, stack one, Henry VIII, stack two, Edward VI, stack three, Mary I, stack four. Um, from 1485 to 1558, the, the paper lists in the reading rooms also um, are basically a reprint of the old list and index society volume so that gives full details on the cases some are detailed in full but the, the later on you go the less information that you get so it will be just by parties names um, From Elizabeth First strain which is pretty poorly listed there's over 900 bundles um, but only listed by plaintiff and defendant's name. Even in the manuscript list you have to use in the map room. There's no expansion on the nature of the case or the county that it's arising from. This might be a priority area to to look at. There's a four volume 18th century list, um, which has got various arrangements by bundles. Um, by the first plaintiff's surname but it's by by no means ideal and there's a, a list and index, um, name index supplementary series volume four which can be helpful but as I said just parties names in the catalogue but no details of the cases for James the first 314 bundles um, there was an original typescript list from the 1920s but this has now been entered onto the catalogue can be searched electronically. There's also an index by um, an American historian called Thomas Barnes, which is an old 1970s computer printout in various columns based on parties, places, offenses, and counties. Um, It's a kind of code system. (laughs) It's got a a two-page explanation at the start of each volume. Much simpler now, you can just search on, on the names but it means it's very comprehensive in terms of well, compared to Elizabeth I's listing, for example. And in Charles I's reign, there's only two bundles surviving, um, and you can imagine this was the peak of the Star Chamber's business. So there'd literally be tens of thousands of bundles probably generated at the time, but the whole whole archive has disappeared. The other side of the process is the judicial and administrative records, but half of the Star Chamber archive, we estimate, has now disappeared. Uh, All the decree and order books are missing. Some extracts have uh, reappeared in private collections, which are now at the British Library, but this isn't really reliable as an indication of what was there. Um, Sometimes the decrees will be on the backs of bills, the first stage of the case but it was all active in in Grey's Inn when the court was abolished and the records had disappeared with some lawyer somewhere probably or been destroyed. Um, We haven't seen them since. Sometimes there'd be a, a bond given by defendants to secure their appearance and these exist in Stack 13 series but they're mostly the second half of the 16th century and there also are some files of returned writs, which might um, give some information on cases which don't survive. But because the, the, the whole archive is so poorly catalogued, we wouldn't really know whether these cases are missing or not at this stage. And some written commission books for the last bit of Elizabeth's reign up to the middle of Charles I's reign are in PRO 30 38 there's also a more general series of bonds and writs to get people to appear before the council and in chancery. And quite often these are related to, to legal business in the council itself, but it could also include star chamber and requests and chancery. In C244, the corpus con causa files, and C255, which is more miscellaneous files. But they're actually very useful if you can persist with them. And this is what some of the bonds look like in stack 13, um, complete with the signet seals of the defendants. Usually if there was a conviction there would be a fine, even if there was some of the other horrible punishment. And notes to the fines are recorded on the memoranda rolls in E159. Again they're buried amongst a whole range of other exchequer business so they're not particularly easy to find but it might be all there is for certain periods. <coughs> and there's also a, a printout of fines from 1596 to 1641 in the map room here. And others might be accounted on uh, the particulars of account count in E101 or in E137. We're also working through the miscellaneous boxes, about 22 boxes of um, miscellaneous in stack 10, which has a great deal of material separated from other cases. Um, and from other courts, but it's a little bit like the uncatalogued parts of of Rec. 3 and Rec. 2. Um, There's just no way of attaching most of this back to an original case. So various things have been written on Star Chamber. The basic guide is by John Guy, Piero Handbook No. 21, published in 1984, The Court of Star Chamber and its Records to the Reign of Elizabeth and it was envisaged that um, Thomas Barnes would do the second volume that took it up from um, James I's reign to the Civil War when the court was abolished, but that that was never completed, although I think there's some drafts of it somewhere. But he did produce a number of articles, the most important of which is probably the archives and archival problems of the Elizabethan and early Stuart Star Chamber in the journey of the Society of Archivists in 1963. There's some comprehensive notes in the, the paper lists for stack one and two, which goes into much of what I said about jurisdiction and origins and development uh, on the court procedure. And the Selden Society volume, Select Cases in the Star Chamber, actually has transcripts of a lot of cases and the introduction will tell you a lot more about the intricacies of, um, of the court operating. And then sort of basis for this talk, Star Chamber Stories, Geoffrey Elton's little book here, which looked at eight cases from Henry VIII's reign, really is a way of demonstrating the range of information in these records and the kind of things you can pull out of the Star Chamber archive. And it's written as a story of the plaintiff or the defendant, very useful background for how this, this dry archival stuff can be transformed into something a bit more readable and interesting. A lot of local record societies have transcribed Star Chamber cases for their particular county. Um, Certainly for counties like Lancashire there's a very comprehensive coverage and they've sent people down to trawl through these archives and pull out cases relevant to their counties. We've also actually got a contemporary treatise on how Star Chamber worked by William Hudson, which is now in Stack 13. So switching to requests, what has survived for this court? Well most of the case papers are in REQ Rec 2 series but less than half of this Rec 2 series has been listed or catalogued and the half that's missing is James the and all of Charles the so for the early 17th century there's a huge amount of stuff, probably about forty-four boxes, I think, isn't listed. We do have all the courtside records, but for requests, so rec-, rec one is often the best way of finding a case um, to fill this gap, sort of sixteen thirteen to forty-one. And from Henry VIII's reign to the first half of James's reign, listing is good, but in a complex arrangement. So these kind of overlap, and in the research guide you can look at on the website, it sets this out in a table, so it's a little bit more clear. But Henry VII to Elizabeth, um, there's a list and index volume 21 which lists all these bundles, rec 2 1 to 136. My colleague Pete Seaman is now itemising the earliest bundles in rec 2, um, up to about piece five, piece six. Piece 6 and actually this listing has been very useful already in in pulling out the details of cases um, and getting people onto a different track as as far as looking at these records is concerned Um, there's various manuscript calendars up in the map room one called hunt's calendar covers elizabeth i's reign Um, there's another unnamed manuscript index carries this on um, for elizabeth's reign into a person place and subject index and there's some other bundles in another list and index supplementary volume 7. As you can see, it's getting a bit confusing. But bundles 369 and 386 have no index. So that's another picture of some request bundles. For James the I, there's another manuscript index and another supplementary list and index. And the remainder of James's bundles and all of Charles I's are unindexed. And that's 404 boxes each containing up to 100 suits, and they're produced by the box and as you'll see when you look at them, the box seems to be crammed full and they tend to jump out when you take the lid off, so they're not um, very well looked after, or they haven't been in the past, um, and we need to do something about it really to make these available. The series Rec 1 contains a complete archive, pretty much, of the administrative side of the court the books that marked how the cases were managed by the councillors. Most important are the decree and order books, which are orders and decrees, but also drafts of these documents, final judgments, and lists of appearances before 1520. And also we have appearance books, which again record appearances, not surprisingly, um, of defendants, usually by their attorney's name. Then affidavit books, especially statements um, that writs of summons have been served, so all these documents tell you the processes that the case is going through and that each stage has been completed. And that's what a draft decree and order book looks like. Um, You can see it at the back, it's probably about 12 centimeters thick. And again um, a pretty early entry, in this case in Latin, but it's from 1497 They're very clear, they've actually been well-preserved, so the text is easy enough to read. We've also got notebooks that are sort of summaries of the outline of the progress of cases. Process books recording writs being issued, um, instructions to arrest defendants, appointing commissioners and injunctions and orders to make appearances. But again, these are mainly the second half of the 16th century up to the end of the court in 1642. And also witness books, which are quite useful recording the names and appearances of witnesses whose depositions may or may not survive. Again, Elizabeth to Charles I, unfortunately. And there's various individual, mainly 17th century documents, uh, indexes, bill books, and commission books, and files of other types of records and entry books, which um, form this sort of miscellaneous collection of managing cases. But in REC 3 uh, we've got 44 boxes of miscellanea and for these there is absolutely no listing. John Guy did a, a brief summary um, but it's a very arbitrary dating and it's got a lot of material from other council courts, from the council itself and from chancery. And it's sort of, the problem is related because it was all stored in the treasury of the receipt of the Exchequer after 1641 and has become confused over the years. So John Guy's draft list is the only sort of key to this and that's been put into the, the listing for Rec. 3 in the catalog. And Rec. 4 is an extracted collection of material relating to Shakespeare and playhouses in London which is very well known to Sh- Shakespearean colli- uh, scholars. This gives you some idea of the um, the damage to these miscellaneous boxes. Uh, you can see some paper depositions at the top uh, just fragmenting as they've been water damaged over the years. And the parchment at the bottom is split, again, because of water damage. So it's quite a, a conservation um, job to get these you know, into a, a form which can be produced and looked at more than once, basically. Cause You get the impression these would crumble away if they were looked at more than once. So Requests, again, has a Selden Society volume, volume 12 from 1898, which goes into the the background. And one of the masters in Requests in Elizabeth's reign, uh, Sir Julius Caesar, has written a history of the court really to defend its jurisdiction against the common law judges but that is now in an edition from 1975, which we have in the library. And it is an understudied and underused resource. I think most people know the value of the chancery material um, just because it's better listed and it's been around for a lot longer. But the nature of this equity material in the Star Chamber inquest Quest is very similar in terms of the types of cases that were coming in. And if anything, in requests you're getting a lower level of information, uh, a lower level of people's lives being um, illuminated. So these things need to be to be looked at in a bit more depth. I think. Thank you very much. This event was recorded live on December the twelfth, two thousand and six, at the National Archives at Kew. It was presented by Sean Cunningham. This podcast is copyright the National Archives. All rights reserved.